and welcome to the Pastor's Bible Study Podcast. I'm Reverend Jessica Strisco, and we continue our study called Risking Faith today. This is a Lenten study, and each week we look at a different event recorded in the Gospels as happening the week before Jesus' crucifixion. This is week two of the study, and today we're talking about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple, focusing on how he risked righteous anger. Glad you've joined us. Let's begin with an opening prayer together. Loving and gracious God, we thank you for this time today to gather together and to continue studying the Bible together. We thank you that each time we read scripture, there's an opportunity for your Holy Spirit to speak into our hearts and our lives. And so we ask that we would be open to hearing your voice today. Help us to continue following you and letting these scriptures speak into the ways we behave as we serve you and your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been calling the Lenten series that we're doing Risking Faith, and there's a specific theme again this week, and it is Risking Righteous Anger. Each week, I'm going to be drawing inspiration from Amy Jill Levine's book, Entering the Passion of Jesus, A Beginner's Guide for Holy Week. And Amy Jill Levine, again, she's a Vanderbilt professor, really wonderful, full of great wisdom for us. I find her work so, so helpful as I study scripture. And I'll be referencing a few other sources as well. The Bible passage that we begin with today is all about Jesus overturning tables in the temple. It's a story that shows up in all four Gospels, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels. It means see together, it's a Greek word, and it it refers to the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they probably share some source material. They often present a, a similar view of the Gospel story with some differences, of course. And so they talk about this incident as Jesus cleansing the temple. John's gospel is a little different, and it it also tells this story, but it does it in a different way at a different part of the gospel as well. Uh, All of that to say, we're gonna focus primarily on Mark's version and John's version of this story, the temple story today. Let me give you the information to find the account in all four of the Gospels, though, so that if you're interested, you can go back and read all of them more closely. Uh, So those are Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19, John chapter 2, verses 13 to 21, Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 to 17, and Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48. A practice that you might find helpful as you read these versions of the gospel accounts are to to make a chart. And along the top axis, you could have the names of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then along the side, you could have these prompts, uh, where in the gospel, so beginning, middle, or end what Jesus does, what Jesus says, and the result or how people respond. And that might be an interesting way to see the various accounts. 
This is what Levine says about the, the way that this story shows up in all of the Gospels. She says, a number of my students get very worried when I point out the differences. They fear that they cannot trust the Gospels or that Matthew or John somehow got the details wrong. There are some biblical studies experts who delight in pointing out discrepancies in the text as if a different perspective would serve like a thread that when pulled would unravel the entire picture. Nonsense, she says. The gospel writers are telling their readers what, to think, what they think their readers need to know. And the people who put the biblical canon together determined that four separate stories are better than one. The differing details give us different insights because they present the same story from different perspectives. We should rejoice in the distinctions and the wisdom of the people who put the New Testament together, who allowed the different perspectives on the story to be retained. Uh, that resonates very much with my perspective of reading the Gospels as well. And I hope that, um, that if that's different from how you have thought of the differences in scripture, that it would be a, a gift to you to think of them in that way. Let's look first today at Mark's Gospel account. Again, that's in chapter 11 of Mark, verses 15 to 19. Mark's gospel tells us uh, that this happens, this event happens, the day after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which we talked about last week. Jesus and his disciples spent the night after that triumphal entry. They spent the night in Bethany nearby, and then they return to Jerusalem the next day. And we're going to read the passage of Mark's all the way through, and then we'll go through um, a few verses at a time for deeper context today. Mark 11, 15 to 19. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So let's begin by addressing the subject of Jesus' anger in this passage. Early Christians talked quite a bit about the passages in the Bible where Jesus expressed um, what Greco-Roman philosophy would call passions. So when Jesus expressed anger, often this story is the one that's pointed to when Jesus expressed sadness, like when Jesus weeps, those are pointed to, and, and Greco-Roman people wrestled with those passages. They wondered, how is it that Jesus could show those passions? Those weren't thought of as very good qualities by a lot of the philosophy of the day. But we also see how the fact that Jesus experiences those real human emotions remind us that Jesus is, in fact, both fully human and fully God. So we're reminded through these 
moments of holy anger, as we'll talk about, and also when Jesus expresses empathy and compassion, weeping, um, that we are reminded Jesus is with us in every way that is meaningful for us as human beings, and that includes experiencing emotion. So this passage caught people's attention from the very beginning when it was first shared, and it, it leads to rich conversation and debate still today. So here's how Amy Jill Levine, the author of the book I referenced earlier, reflects on the difference between anger that is helpful versus anger that is harmful. So she talks about the, the good ways that anger can lead to good and holy acts of seeking justice. She writes, we might think of Jesus' action in terms of righteous anger or even holy anger. There are times we may find that business as usual is not only inappropriate, it is obscene. Something has to be done. If we do not feel some sort of rage when preventable tragedies occur, if we do not feel compelled to act, then something has gone terribly wrong with us. She notes that in um, traditional thought that wrath or this sort of uncontrolled anger was talked of as one of the seven deadly sins. You may be familiar with that um, idea, but she makes a distinction between the anger Jesus is experiencing, holy anger, righteous anger, and the wrath that was being described as a sin. She says that they're different, they're different things. Um, wrath refers to a temper out of control, to rage, and so to hate, and the desire for revenge. That's not the same thing as righteous anger. Righteous anger seeks restitution, not revenge. It seeks correction, not retribution. I find that perspective so helpful. About Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Levine um, points to the anger that Jesus forbids. So if you're familiar with that part of the gospel, Jesus talks about um, how angry, how anger can cause us to sin. And so she points to that and she says that the anger that Jesus forbids is anger against another person, but he does not forbid anger against systemic evils, hypocrisy, exploitation, harassment, molestation, drug pushing, she goes on to name all these things. Such forms of injustice should make us angry and that anger should lead to constructive action. And so that's really the difference. The, the purpose of the anger and the, and the result of it. Is, it. is it action that makes the world a more just and holy place, more like the kingdom of God? Secondly, I think it's important for us as modern readers to gain a deeper understanding of the temple itself. As we're reading this passage, the temple is the, is the setting of the entire story, and so it's important for us. The temple, Levine reminds us, is a complex that is enormous. She says it's the length, of, the size of 12 soccer fields put end to end. And she says, so if Jesus turns over a table or two in one part of the complex, it's not going to make much of a difference given the size of the place. The action doesn't stop all business. It's symbolic rather than practical, she says. 
Now, I want to note that that is not to say that what Jesus does doesn't cause quite a stir. I was thinking um, about how large our Mission Valley campus is, for example, but we would certainly hear about it pretty quickly if someone had turned tables over almost no matter where they were on our campus. We would, we would know about it, it would impact um, the setting, even if it didn't stop everything from continuing. I think it's helpful to um, hear Levine's reflection on the scale of the place. And she describes for us how the temple was built and then destroyed multiple times during Jewish history. Um, the Jewish Jerusalem temple, excuse me, which King Herod the Great began to rebuild and which was still under construction at the time of Jesus has several courts. And so it's helpful to note there's an inner sanctum and that was called the Holy of Holies. And it's where the high priest only could enter. And even then, he could only enter on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, which was the Day of Atonement, a day to ask for forgiveness for himself and on behalf of the people. Outside of that is the court of the priests. Outside of that is the court of Israel. Beyond that is the court of women. And outside of that is the court of the Gentiles. So again, a huge space with different areas within it. And in the court of the Gentiles, um, all pe people of all nations and backgrounds were welcome to worship in that, in that part of the temple. So let's look at verse 15. It says, then they came to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples, and he entered the, the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. The place that all of this happens is in the court of the Gentiles. That's where the vendors were set up. And I think Levine's perspective, again, is so helpful. She says, we need to think of the temple as something other than what we think of churches. So she points out how a church is usually a place of quiet and decorum, but the temple was something very different. It was a tourist attraction, especially during this time of pilgrimage festivals. So there was a lot of movement, a lot of stuff going on, and it was meant to be festive. There was noise and loud and boisterous noise because it was Passover, and people were happy because they were celebrating this festival of freedom. We might think of the setting as a type of vacation for the pilgrims, she writes, a chance to feel a special connection with their fellow Jews and with God. It was into this setting that Jesus comes. The temple, she also reminds us, at the time of Jesus, it was many things. It was a house of prayer for all nations. It was the site for three uh, pilgrimage festivals. And it was um, also a national bank. And it, it also served as the only place in the Jewish world where sacrifices could be offered. So where that reconciliation with God could happen between God and the Jewish people. That was such a key part of their religious practice. So she says they needed to have vendors on site 
it, it wasn't a bad thing to have vendors on site. It was necessary for the temple to do its good work. Um, she points out that the money changers in the space were there for a, a holy purpose, a, a useful purpose. They were there to get the currency that people would have brought with them from all over and to change it into the currency that was allowed in the temple. Um, much of the currency in those days had the face of the emperor on it, and that would not have been allowed to be used at the temple because Greco-Roman society worshipped the emperor as a god. And of course, that went against the monotheistic beliefs of Jewish people, that there is one god and one god only. So that face of the emperor being worshipped, they didn't want to use that money in the holy setting of the temple. Um, they had to use it in their everyday life. They weren't in charge of that currency. But in the temple, they could use currency that reflected their values. And so there were places to exchange it at the temple. Um, you also wanted to have vendors on site that you could buy um, animals with which to sacrifice. Um, doves are mentioned in the scripture because doves were the sacrificial animal allowed for people who were poor, and there were a lot of poor people in this time. And then there were other animals if you had more means um, with which to sacrifice, um, offer that sacrifice. And so if you were traveling a long journey on a pilgrimage to come and offer the best possible sacrifice you could afford at the temple, you wouldn't want to bring an animal with you that long distance. The, the animal could get lost or injured or uh, suffer in some way. And so you wanted to be able to buy whatever you intended to sacrifice on location. And so that's the reason that there were these vendors in the court of the Gentiles, a place where you could get the currency you needed and the best possible animal that you would want, for, really for your convenience, to do what you felt called to do for your religious faith. So verse 16 continues. It says, and Jesus would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And I, I see this point uh, as noting Jesus is disrupting business as usual. And he's disrupting that attitude in the temple. It reminds me when it says he wouldn't let anyone carry anything. It reminds me of those Sabbath rules about what can be carried and when. Uh, you don't want to do work on the Sabbath, and sometimes carrying things was thought of as work. And so he's not allowing anyone to carry things through that sacred space. I think it brings to our attention then when Jesus did this and now. Um, we're called to be thinking about spaces as well as particular days as sacred. Places and times can be sacred. Jesus is creating a disruption in the usual goings-on of the temple. One of the most helpful things that Amy Jill Levine's scholarship gives to us is a challenge for us. Um, we are invited to challenge how we've maybe always read the scripture, especially when those ways we've always read it could have been based on a misreading of the scripture. Um, and often those misreadings 
can be born from either intentional or unintentional misunderstanding of the Jewish tradition. Um, she's a scholar, Amy Jolivine is a scholar of Judaism and the New Testament, and so we're so blessed that she can bring the richness of both of those areas of knowledge um, together. She has profound respect for both, and bringing them together enriches our reading. And so she says that despite Hollywood and sermon after sermon, there is no indication that the vendors were overcharging or exploiting the population, that people, the people would not have allowed that to happen. And so she says, Jesus is not engaging here in a protest of cheating the poor. I think that's really important. We know that it's in Jesus' character to protest the cheating of the poor, but she's saying that's not what he's doing in this story. And so let's, that brings the question, what is Jesus angry about? What is he protesting? What is the, what is his righteous anger directed toward? And that's what verse 17 helps us understand. So verse 17 says, Jesus was teaching and saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So I want to focus on the two phrases that Jesus uses here. Uh, one is that this is a house of prayer for all the nations. And the second is when Jesus says, you have made it a den of robbers. So both of those phrases are connected to Hebrew scripture. They're referencing parts of Hebrew scripture. And it's important, of course, to look at the context like we talked about last week. So to understand what Jesus is doing and protesting, we look back at the scripture he's referencing. So let's look at the first one. He talks about the house of prayer, um, that the temple is a house of prayer for all nations. And that's a reference to Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 8. I'll read it for us. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath and do not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. And so in, in talking about the temple as a house of prayer for all people, you can see that Jesus is, is really celebrating what the temple stands for, its potential for this joyous and inclusive praise of God. Uh, and as Levine puts it in the synoptic gospels, remember Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the concern is not the temple, but the attitude of the people who are coming to it. So Jesus is not resisting the temple in this story. He's instead critiquing the attitude of those who might come to it casually. So let's talk a bit more about that. She adds, uh, Levine writes, already we find the challenge and the risk and she helps bring it into modern day context for us. 
Are churches today houses of prayer for all people, or are they just for people who look like us, walk like us, and talk like us? How do we make other people feel welcome? Is the stranger greeted upon walking into the church? Is the first thing a stranger hears in the sanctuary, you're in my seat? When we pray or sing hymns, do we think about what those words would sound like in a stranger's ears? I wanna invite us to pause and reflect on just some stories that maybe you've heard um, about people's experiences coming into a church, often when they expect and hope for hospitality, but might meet something a little less than that. Uh, I have a colleague who shares a story about um, a new appointment. So she's going as the pastor to a new church and she decides to visit before it's officially time for her to begin. People don't really know her yet, but she, she wants to check it out and see what the church is like. And so she shows up and she has her hair dyed in one particular part of her hair. And she goes up to meet the greeter and he gives her kind of the side eye, pretty critical looking of, of her appearance. And she says hello, tries to shake his hand and he, if you can believe it, doesn't shake her hand and turns and walks away. It's hard to imagine, and yet, um, unfortunately, there are other stories of this happening uh, all too often. I think, too, of maybe less dramatic stories. Amy Jill Levine gives some examples where she's visited churches and um, maybe no one has said anything to her in her time there, even though it's her first time she's a guest in that place. Um, I think about a time I visited a, a lovely United Methodist Church in Virginia. I, I love visiting other churches and I love to say hello to the, the pastors there and let them know that I'm worshiping with them that day. I tried so hard to say hello to the pastor and I, I never got the opportunity. Um, I, think that's, I just think that's funny that sometimes when, when we're looking to say hello, to the pastor, to lay leaders, to anyone, and say, hi, I'm here, I'd love to get to know your church better. Sometimes, even those who are looking for that opportunity don't find it. And I know we, we wouldn't wish to create that sort of space. We want to be a place of hospitality, eagerly welcoming those who are joining us, not making them feel self-conscious, but letting them know we're glad that they're with us, that we notice them, we see them, and this is a space, a a place for prayer for all people. So how can we, friends, as followers of Jesus, recommit ourselves to the heart that Jesus demonstrates for hospitality, his heart for sacred spaces to be houses of prayer for all people? How can we disrupt our routines to truly see one another, see people who are new, and maybe even be able to see those who are not here yet. Notice that they're missing and feel called to do something about it. Jesus was fired up about these issues and, and the suggestion that Levine gives us is maybe we can be fired up about these issues as well. The second phrase that Jesus use here, uses here is to say you've made the temple a den of robbers. And 
it's helpful to know what that phrase even means. So a den of robbers, den kind of means a cave, and a, this would be a place where robbers would go and count their loot. So after they've robbed, they would go back to their like home base, their cave, their den, and be safe there. And so she points out, Levine says, um, it's not where robbers rob, it's where they, they feel safe. And so her point is emphasized by the context that this phrase comes from. So den of robbers is a, another reference to Hebrew scripture. In, it's a phrase that shows up in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. And Jesus is referring back to this phrase. Um, and let me read these words from Jeremiah. It says, Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and then and go to after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are safe, only to go on doing these things, these abominations. Has this house, which has been called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. So it's a Jeremiah's critiquing the idea that people go out and do all these horrible things in their real life, and then they go to the temple and they feel like, oh, I'm all, I'm all good, I'm safe here. Um, I'll act the right way while I'm here, but maybe not anywhere else. Um, and God says, no, I, I see you. I see you everywhere. I'm watching, and you're in my house. Um, so it's a, it's a compelling scripture. So we begin to see that Jesus is righteously angry, perhaps, about um, his protest being hypocrisy. That's what's making him angry. He's angry that people are in this sacred space, this temple of God, perhaps focused on selfish or superficial purposes, instead of turning their lives in love toward God and neighbor. Uh, this is how Levine says it. Jeremiah and Jesus indicted people then and now. The ancient temple and the present day church should be places where people not only find community, welcome the stranger, and repent of their sins. They should be places where people promise to live a godly life and keep their promises. And I would add to that, it should be a place where there's grace when we fail to do those things, but where we're constantly encouraging one another, challenging ourselves to grow in grace, as our church talks about, and reach out with love. It's not surprising to us that the church isn't always like that. We know we are imperfect people. We, we do fall short sometimes of the glory of God, um, and that's why we depend on God's grace. Um, but it's also important, we know, to commit ourselves to that journey. Um, our founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, he talked about that as going on to perfection, a commitment to keep growing in our faith and how we live it in the world. In the seasons of the church, um, Lent is the time where, where we challenge ourselves again to recommit ourselves to the way of Jesus where we acknowledge the places we have fallen, fallen short, recognize again our need 
for God's grace. It's Lent is a time to turn toward God again, to repent and rededicate ourselves to following Jesus. Um, and so welcoming the stranger and refusing to be complacent or lukewarm, so to speak, are, those are our opportunities every, every year during Lent and beyond. But Lent in particular calls us to that focus. So I want to share with you an opportunity for prayer and reflection on, on this subject. I invite you to take some notes, uh, even today, on, on what I'm about to read. As you really pray about and reflect on the things that you take note of, then sleep on it and go back and add to it, edit it, change it. Um, listen for God's voice speaking to you today and even tomorrow. Give yourself that time for reflection. So this is what uh, Levine writes, and I encourage you to make some notes of reflection. She says, maybe, perhaps during Lent, congregants might fully assess what they have done during the past year and what they will do in the future. Have they forgiven trespasses or resisted temptation? Have they loved their neighbors as themselves? Have they, as Jesus also mandates, loved their enemies? Have they fully been reconciled not only to God, but also to one another? May that reflection be a blessing to us in this season of Lent, that as we are honest with ourselves about ourselves, we will be more readily open and um, noticing God's grace at work in our lives. So the next verse in the passage is verse 18, verses 18 and 19, and they say this, and when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill Jesus, for they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So these verses speak to the result or the response of Jesus' righteous anger. We can note that there were certainly political dynamics here, especially um, in the Synoptic Gospels. This comes right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Again, it's Passover time. And Levine points out the temple would have been packed. People certainly would have noticed this happening, what Jesus does, and the temple had police. Jesus could have been arrested right then and there. Um, the gospel also describes the response of chief priests, and the high priest at the time, uh, we know, was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was appointed by Rome. He served at the pleasure of Rome, and he was charged with keeping the peace. And so he, he answers to Rome. He's trying to um, placate them, but he's also trying to represent the needs uh, and the concerns of the Jewish people, the, the law and the interests that the community holds. So it's useful to remember that this high priest, although he has some power, he too is living under a state of oppression. And that is not offered in any way to excuse his murderous intentions. It simply adds understanding for us, humanizes him a little bit um, as we read this scripture.
Levine says, when Jesus comes into the city in the triumphal entry, when people are hailing him as the son of David, Caiaphas recognizes the political danger. The Gospel of John, which we'll read next, tells us that the people wanted to make Jesus king, and that's in John chapter 6, verse 15. Caiaphas has to watch out for the mob. Caiaphas also has to watch out for all these Jewish pilgrims coming from all over the empire to celebrate the Feast of Freedom, the end of slavery. When he sees Roman troops surrounding the Temple Mount, Caiaphas has to keep the peace, and Jesus is a threat to that peace. So we see once again how Jesus brings a message about spiritual realities. Uh, but then and now, they come up against political realities too, don't they? Uh, Jesus' ministry never existed in a vacuum, uh, and it still doesn't. So let's turn now to John's Gospel and his telling of this story, and we'll reflect on that a little bit more. Uh, there's a major difference that I mentioned at the beginning of uh, this lesson, and that is that John tells this story about Jesus turning over the tables in the temple in chapter 2 of his gospel. And so it's not told as part of the last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. It's much, much earlier. In John's gospel, it comes um, right after the first miracle that Jesus does when he turns water into wine at, in Cana. And so there are different implications and reactions to what Jesus does in the temple in John's gospel as opposed to the others. So the synoptics very much clue us into the political threat of what Jesus is doing. John's gospel does not. And so then the good question for us is, what is the focus of John's gospel as this story is told? What is the emphasis that John shares with us that made this story so important for us to know that he wanted it to be included in his gospel? And so to try and understand this, once again, I'm going to read um, the passage through, and then we'll go a few verses at a time for deeper context. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 21. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. And he, and he also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you give us for doing this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So in this account, Jesus does more than just turn over the tables of the money changers, right? It says he, 
He fashions a whip of cords and drives people out. And when Jesus speaks, he speaks about different things as well. He doesn't talk about the house of prayer for all nations. He doesn't talk about the den of robbers. It says in verse 16, he told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. Jesus is alluding in this uh, part of the gospel to a different Hebrew scripture altogether. Um, this comes from Zechariah chapter 14, verse 21. And the prophet is describing a day of the Lord, uh, a time that was expected in the future, a time when people would come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and other festivals, a holy festival. And that's what's happening in the moment that Jesus quotes this part of scripture. And Zechariah says, in that day of the Lord, every cooking pot, this is reading from Zechariah, every cooking pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be sacred to the Lord of hosts so that all who sacrifice may come and use them in order to offer their sacrifices at the temple. And the verse continues, and there shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So those vendors that we talked about earlier, there will no longer be a need for them, it says, in that day of the Lord that is coming. Um, I want to read with you the message translation of this as well, because I think it adds um, some helpful context. So the message, verses 20 to 21, says, On that day, the big day, all the horses harness, all the horses harness bells will be inscribed, Holy to God. The cooking pots in the temple of God will be as sacred as chalices and plates on the altar. In fact, all the pots and pans in all the kitchens of Jerusalem and Judah will be holy. People who come to worship preparing meals and sacrifices will use them. On that big day, there will be no buying or selling in the temple. So in John's gospel, Jesus' holy anger, he, he seems to be mad that people don't recognize that the holy day of God has arrived, that it's here, that the kingdom of God is at hand, as Jesus says in other parts of his ministry. Uh, this is how Levine describes it. She says, in John's version of the temple incident, Jesus anticipates the time when there will no longer be a need for vendors, for every house, not only in Jerusalem, but all of Judea shall be like the temple itself. The sacred nature of the temple will spread through all people. It's a beautiful image, a powerful image. And listen to this. Um, it's something that Levine wrote in 2018, so long before the pandemic that we have been living through. But listen to how much it resonates with some of our own experiences today. She says, can our homes be as sanctified, as filled with worship as the local church? Is the church just a building or is the church the community who gathers in Jesus' name, who acts as Jesus taught, who lives the good news? Jesus' words, citing Zechariah, anticipate a time when all peoples, all nations can worship in peace and in love. There is no separation between home and house of worship because the entire land lives in a sanctified state. 
So this idea of holiness becoming a pervasive part of life uh, shows up here. It shows up in other prophetic scripture too, by the way. Um, it's hinted at in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. Um, and there's a promise of the new covenant in that piece of prophecy as well. It says, no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. For followers of Jesus, reading those words of Hebrew scripture in retrospect resonate for us with the ministry of Jesus. That connection between scripture to the way that Jesus lived and ministered on earth um, has been happening from, from the time of Jesus' life to our day. It says this in John's Gospel in the very next verse. It says in verse 17, Jesus' disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So as they see what Jesus is doing, they are reflecting and they reference Psalm 69, verse 9. And that psalm says this, It is zeal for your house that has consumed me. The insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. I'm taking it personally, the insults that are directed at you, O oh God. Um, Levine, I want to turn to her words again. She says in John's account, the disciples provide their own interpretation of what they have just witnessed. Again, they find that Jesus is acting in full accordance with the scriptures of Israel, and they remember this Psalm 69, verse 9. The disciples know their scripture, and they're able to see new things in this ancient text in light of their encounter with Jesus. Why does the gospel writer tell this story then? One possible reason is for us to gut check our own passions, our priorities. Um, Levine says, and so we stop to ask, what consumes us? For what do we display zeal? Uh, Lent, of course, is a time to refocus ourselves on aligning our priorities and our hearts with God's. What would we risk righteous anger for? Verse 18 continues in this way. It says, the Jews said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Um, that verse, by the way, it's one of the ways that the scholars who read um, the text know that the Gospel of John is written later than the other Gospels. Um, Jesus, we know, was Jewish. All of his followers at this point were Jewish. And so he's drawing a distinction in, in this gospel, the fact that it draws a distinction between Jesus and the Jewish people enough to say that the Jews came and spoke to Jesus, that would have been a, reflecting a later reality when those groups did become more distinct over time. So in verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Levine compares this to saying, destroy the Statue of Liberty and I'll have it back up in 72 hours. Um, 
it was a monumental thing to say. And we can see that as the verse continues in verse 20. The Jews said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. Will you raise it up in three days? You can hear how incredulous they are and for good reason. Uh, it's a good question that they ask. And Levine tells us, and the gospel tells us, Jesus has changed the subject. That's why they're kind of confused. He's speaking about the temple of his body, it says in verse 21. It turns out that Jesus' anger about making God's house into a marketplace and his way of talking about the temple as his body, those two things are connected in a way that early readers of John's gospel would have immediately understood. This is how Levine puts it. She says, when the temple was destroyed by Titus and the Romans in 70 CE, Jesus followers like their, like their fellow Jews continued to worship in their homes and in their synagogues. The Jewish followers of Jesus took comfort in the idea that Jesus' body was for them a new temple in the sacrifice of Jesus and in the eating of the bread and drinking the wine, they could find the reconciliation that they had previously found in the Jerusalem temple. So the destruction of the temple changed the life and religious practices of the Jewish community and early, early followers of Jesus among them. COVID-19 and the pandemic they have, have not brought down our sacred spaces, but it has brought tremendous loss of life and grief and structural change. The destruction of the temple changed the life and religious practices of Jewish, the Jewish community and early Jesus followers among them. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has not brought down our sacred spaces, but it has brought tremendous loss of life, tremendous grief, and structural changes that we will be exploring for a long time to come. It's important to recognize how these two seismic events differ, but we can also glean wisdom, I think, about the truth that endures in scripture uh, the promise of resurrection hope that was necessary in the wake of the temple's destruction, as well as in our day, anytime we go through a major upheaval. And so I invite you to consider those connections with me to reflect on the ways that, that our world is changing and that we might be called to practice our faith in this time and in this day. Thank you for joining in this study with me. Let's close together in prayer. Gracious God, would you help us to join you in holy anger, anger that leads to new action, that leads to justice for all people, leads to everyone experiencing the fullness of your love and your promise of abundant life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.